Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, and then 16. We read, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness. That calls to mind initially a legal context. You know, in the days before there was such a thing as forensic evidence, cases were decided almost entirely on the evidential testimony of witnesses. And in a Jewish court of law, they recognized that one false witness could be literally fatal to an accused. And so that's why in the Jewish law system, you needed to have two or three witnesses to corroborate uh, testimony of a crime. So thou shalt not bear false witness initially relates, we would say, to the court of law. But in both Jewish and Christian tradition, it's always been thought to mean something much more than that, as is outlined here in the larger catechism questions. How so? Well, uh, in one regard, you know, all of the Ten Commandments are framed in the negative, or almost all the Ten Commandments are framed in the, the negative. Thou shall not. But we, uh, we would say that there's always an inverse positive obligation attached to those. So thou shalt not kill, um, but there's the positive inverse, which means you must positively protect your neighbor's life. Likewise, thou shalt not commit adultery means you're obligated positively to protect your neighbor's family and marriage. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Now, what is the positive inverse? And it's this. You are obligated to protect your neighbor's reputation. You are obligated to protect their good name as ardently as you protect your own. And when you think of it in those terms, that's a very tall ask. A very, very tall ask of us. So the larger catechism's teaching on the, ten, uh, the Ninth Commandment is one of my favorite of them all. And as I read through this, I want you to ask yourself the question, simply this, if churches were to put the words that are here written in the larger catechism, if we were to do this and put this into practice, how would this revolutionize our Christian community? And then similarly, why is it that we struggle so much to put these words into practice. Let's read. What does the ninth commandment require? The ninth commandment requires that we maintain and promote truthfulness in all of our dealings with each other and the good reputation of others as well as ourselves. We must come forward and stand up for the truth, speaking the truth and nothing but the truth from our hearts, sincerely, freely, clearly, and without equivocation, not only in all matters relating to the law and justice, but in any and every circumstance whatsoever. We must have a charitable regard for others, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good reputation, as well as regretting and putting the best light on their failings. Whew. We must freely acknowledge their talents and gifts, defending their innocence, readily, readily receiving a good report about them, and reluctantly admitting a bad one. We should discourage gossips, flatterers, and slanderers. We should love and protect our own good reputation and defend it when necessary. Uh, we should keep 
every lawful promise we make, no matter what. And finally, we should do the best we can to focus our lives and thoughts on things that are true, noble, lovely, and admirable. And then what particular sins does the ninth commandment forbid? The ninth commandment forbids everything detrimental to the truth and the good reputation of others as well as our own with special reference to legal matters in the courts. We must not give untrue evidence, perjury, knowingly appear and plead on behalf of an evil cause or engage in overbearing and boastful exaggeration. We should never participate in passing an unjust sentence or calling evil good or good evil. Forgery is forbidden as is concealing the truth or remaining silent in a just cause. We must not speak the truth at an inappropriate time or maliciously. And as you can see, the question was much longer. And so the dot, dot, dot is trying to get it on one page. Also forbidden are saying anything untrue as well as lying, slandering, backbiting, belittling, gossiping, whispering, ridiculing, reviling, and expressing any kind of judgmental opinion that is rash, harsh, or prejudiced, misconstruing intentions, words, and actions, flattery, and finally failing to promote everyone's good name and doing and not avoiding or hindering in others as we can those things that give people a bad name. Charles Spurgeon was the uh, brilliant Baptist minister who... uh, ministered about 150 years ago in England. His preaching was exceptionally popular. Uh, Spurgeon was kind of your megachurch pastor before there was such a thing. Uh, I mean, his church exploded because hardly anybody has ever preached like Charles Spurgeon. And many of you heard his name before. A story you may not have heard, though, from his life. So Spurgeon was single when he went to Metropolitan Tabernacle in London and the, there was a rumor that started, and they got published in a local London newspaper, that Charles Spurgeon always had a swarm of, of ladies, lady suitors, who would come around him and want to become Mrs. Spurgeon. And that he was a bit of a flirt, and he encouraged them in this. You know, he was a ladies' man pastor. <laughs> And part of the rumor was that there was some kind of Cinderella thing going on as well. The ladies would leave a slipper at the front of the church, hoping that Spurgeon would find it and fall in love with them. Uh, one wonders how they, he would know the uh, identity of the person who had the spl- slipper. But So they ran this in the paper. And even though not, not a bit of it was true, none of it was true, what do you think happened? Everyone believed it. Or, or at least... Where there's smoke, there's fire. There's got to be something here, right? So everybody thought, where there's smoke, there's fire. And not only did everyone in London believe it, it was picked up on the international wire services and spread globally. Well, a few months later, as the story goes, the London newspaper posted a complete retraction. They said that everything was printed was baseless and ungrounded. But the International Wire Services didn't print a retraction. Maybe they couldn't have printed a wire service retraction. So for the rest of Charles Spurgeon's life, whenever he would travel abroad, he would always be asked this question. They would continually bring up this matter and ask him about Charles Spurgeon, the ladies' man, and maybe the womanizer. Proverbs 22.1 teaches us, 
that a good name is more to be valued than what? Than silver or gold. A good name is more to be valued than silver or gold. Yet a good name is so fragile, isn't it? I mean, just as the quote that I put on the front of the bulletin illustrates, probably maybe now more than ever, with what we have at our disposal, one click of a button, is, is a good name so very fragile. I'm not sure that we as Christians have taken seriously enough our responsibility to maintain the good name of our neighbor by speaking good of them. I mean, if you listen to us, if you listen to the stories you tell your wife or your friends or kids, the stories you tell your parents when you come home at the end of the day, there is so much unkindness, so much unkindness in the things that we say about others. So I didn't have a lot of time this week to prepare the sermon, which hopefully means that it'll be brief. (laughs) But what I really want to do is talk simply three forms of false witness and the corresponding true witness that Christ calls us to, and then conclude the sermon with how, uh, a simple point on how this relates to, to Jesus Christ. The first fa- form of false witness is the one I just described, um, slander and gossip. You know, generally when people get burned by the church, the issue is not that they stole my money or I was assaulted in the church parking lot, right? But those things can happen, maybe, but not normally. The issue, when people are burned by churches, it's always, almost always, how they talked to my face, and even more so, what they said about me behind my back. Probably nothing damages a community more than the things that we say about others, the negative things we we talk about others. I think James recognizes. James 4, verses 10 and 11, he says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The very next verse, he says, and brothers, don't slander one another. You know, in in the normal English vernacular today, slander, we think slander is, that refers to what happened to Charles Spurgeon. People who are telling lies about a person. But if I'm not mistaken, somebody can correct me, I think the Greek, in the original Greek, slander simply means to speak against another person. So even something you say could be factually accurate, but if it is an against report and it is delivered with wrong motivations, then it's gossip, it's slander, it's slanderous. And I would challenge you, friends, to pay attention to your conversations because if you start to listen to yourself, at least when I start to listen to myself, I'm surprised at how many negative reports I speak of. I think it was Pascal who once wrote that the things we say about other people, we'd be utterly mortified if they heard the things we said about other people, if they heard the things we said about them. Um, If everyone knew what we said about them behind their backs, he writes, we wouldn't have four friends left in this world. And that's the embarrassing, shameful truth. It's embarrassingly true. Remember Francis Schaeffer's observation. I've used it so many times. I'll probably use it so many times more. 
But if the Lord were to hang an audio tape recorder around our necks and play back all that we have said in criticism of others and then judge us by holding us to the same standard by which we judge them, we would be so buried in condemnation. We would be the most petty, we would be shown to be the most petty hypocrites and be, you know, confined, condemned to the the lowest regions of hell if you were to play all of that back and show us for what we really are. I mean, thank God for mercy, right? But of course, he knows everything that we've ever said about anybody else. So why is it that we find it so hard to simply shut up and stop talking about other people negatively? And I think it's for this reason. That is the conversation we find most fascinating. And and for some reason, um, when we... When we say such and such happened and I want to tell you about it, I don't know, psychologists could talk to us. Maybe that's just the way we triangulate, right? We find this person, you know, scapegoat, you and me, we can kind of connect on all of the inadequacies or the thing that that person did. And and so it's the way that we connect with one another. It's a really terrible way for us to connect with one another, but we do it. Uh, Gossip, they say, is delicious in the mouth. It's delicious in them. It's absolutely delicious. And that's why we find it hard to stop, to, to stop talking about other people. Because it's delicious in the mouth. But, but terribly hard on the stomach. And a killer of community. Some of you were here back in March and you heard me preach a sermon on a related topic. And the title of that sermon was Learning to be Charitable in Our Judgments. And it was the sermon that was based on Jesus' parable of the sawdust in your brother's eye, but the plank sticking out of your own eye. And I gave this definition of charitable judgments. I think it's worth considering again. A charitable judgment means that out of love for God and that other person, you strive to believe the best about others until you have decisive facts to prove otherwise. And if you can reasonably interpret facts in two possible ways, God calls you to embrace the positive interpretation over the negative, or at least to postpone making any judgment at all until you acquire conclusive facts. And when you talk about that judgment, you must be very judicious about speaking about it and equally judicious in listening to other people's judgments. In the words of the catechism we just read, we are to reluctantly receive a bad report from someone else, which is, I dare say, the exact opposite. We, we reluctantly receive a bad report. We are to uh, eagerly receive a good report about someone and to speak about it. We are to rejoice in their talents and their gifts and talk openly and frequently about those things while we never judge their motives because none of us can truly understand the heart of another human being. And wouldn't you agree, if that was the the way that we operated, either as a church or as a school or, or as a community group, if we did that, it would be pure gold to that community. So here's something to ask yourself. When you're tempted to tell someone else something about someone else, A seven-part, fairly contrived question, but bear with me. Does this information 
need to be communicated by me to you at this time with this motive through this medium? Does this information need to be communicated by me to you at this time with this motive through this medium? And if we, if we simply were to ask that seven-part contrived question, we would greatly reduce the number of times we violate the Lord's ninth commandment, right? Secondly, a second common form of false witness is flattery. It was mentioned in the larger catechism. We don't think much about flattery. Flattery, that's, that's a tiny sin. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a little one. We, you know, why would you even take time in a sermon to talk about flattery? Well, I think it's bigger than we realize. So slander and gossip is saying something behind someone's back that you'd never say to their face. Flattery is the exact opposite. Flattery is saying something to someone's face you would never say behind their back. <laughs> it's the, you look absolutely gorgeous in that dress while you're thinking, you know, you look like a puff pastry. <laughs> um, I thought it was funnier than you did. <laughs> And what's the number one reason we flatter people? Flattery is, is great business. It is a great business strategy. Because if you can puff up another person in order to make them think that you think that they hang the moon, then, you know, your chances of sealing the deal are greatly increased. Your chances of receiving the promotion are greatly increased. Your chances of being approved and liked by the other person are greatly increased. It's... It's like an accepted business practice, isn't it? Like a good salesman is somebody who can do that and, and you don't even realize that he's doing that to you. Or another way of thinking about it, flattery is praising another person with praise that you don't believe. It's praising another person with false praise. The reason I think flattery is a big deal is, we'll go back to the Proverbs again, Proverbs 29.5. We read there that whoever flatters his neighbor, it says, is spreading a net for their feet. In other words, flattery hurts the one who is flattered. Uh, how so? Well, when you say, in essence, don't ever change, you're just perfect the way you are, how is that other person ever going to grow? Uh, how can that other person address their character flaws if people are always pumping them up? Up. Flattery is debilitating to the listener because they're never challenged and they're never told the hard truth about themselves. It can also be debilitating because you might be feeding an appetite inside of them that doesn't need to be fed. For instance, when one of the beautiful people posts on, posts on their Instagram account or Snapchat, uh, a selfie where they're looking beautiful. And immediately they start seeing the you know, responses come up. Gorgeous, 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 hottie, gorgeous, gorgeous. Is that even what they need to hear? Because you're probably feeding something inside of them that, that doesn't need to be fed. and actually hurts them. You may have even observed this. That some of the prettiest people in the world are the most insecure because uh, they, they need that thing to be fed in them. And when they're not getting that, then I'm not pretty. And yeah, Proverbs 27 verse 6 says this, that an enemy multiplies kisses, 
but faithful are the wounds of a friend. An enemy multiplies kisses, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. True witnessing, to be a true witness, you can only do so in honest friendship. And thankfully, we have it modeled for us perfectly in the Son of God. <laughs> you know, Jesus was a master at this. He, he would say the hard truth in love. You know, his tone, his manner, his timing, all of which are very, very important, uh, were impeccable. And ours, of course, is often not. But we all know this, that hard truths are not fun to hear and that we'll never become the kind of people that we want to be, that we dream to be, without having someone speak those hard truths to us. Going back to Charles Spurgeon, he preached uh, one time, he said, true friends, this is interesting, true friends put enough trust in you to tell you openly of your faults. They put enough trust in you to tell openly of your faults. Give me a friend, oh sorry, give me for a friend the man who will speak honestly of me before my face, who will not tell first one neighbor and then another, but who will come straight to my house and say, sir, I feel there is such and such a thing in you, which is my brother I must tell you of. That man is a true friend and he has proved himself to be so. Have you ever thought about this? That you can be a false witness simply in your silence. And that's not only true in a legal court where you, you, you're afraid to come forward and testify and give the testimony that will exonerate the accused. No, but that, that's true in our friendships. If we don't ever tell our friends the hard truth in love, then we're not friends. We're enemies. That's what enemies do. Enemies multiply kisses. And so I'll even stop right now. Maybe the Holy Spirit is at work right now, and he's convicting, of you, convicting you. You know you need to say something to another person. And the reason you don't do so is you're just afraid. You're afraid. You know, you know that it's not going to be well received. And so you keep shrinking from doing it. But truly fulfilling the ninth commandment means that I, even if it costs me and hurts me, I'm going to speak the truth in love to you. Then finally, we come to the third form of false witnessing, the most obvious form. You know, the third commandment is often truncated down to, thou shalt not cuss. <laughs> and the ninth commandment's truncated down, thou shalt not lie. Um, and so I purposely put this at the end because I wanted to highlight other forms of false witnessing. But this is, a, this is a, the critical one, is it not? Several years ago, researchers at the University of California at Santa Barbara conducted an experiment where they invited people to enter a private room equipped with an audio tape recorder. And they were asked to recall into the microphone the worst lie they'd ever, been, they'd ever told in their lives. And they were promised complete confidentiality to do so. The authors of the study were expecting whoppers. <laughs> you know, big ones, right? The, the secret affairs, the embezzlement of you know, large amounts of money, etc. And there were some of those. But to their surprise, the stories they kept hearing were stories like these. As a child, I ate the icing off a cake and then told my parents the cake came that way. Or, 
When I was five, I, I stole some coins from my sister and I lied about it. And they were thinking, come on, that's the worst lie you've ever told. But over and over again, stories from childhood kept coming up. What's going on? The, the, the researchers, I don't know that they reached this conclusion, but this is the Christian conclusion we, reach, we would reach. I think it's because lying is one of the first times a human heart ever feels the pang of conscience and the conviction of sin. And that first time can be just so enormous in our emotional register that it feels like the worst thing that we've ever done before. You know, the researchers didn't reach that conclusion about sin, but God has placed into our hearts a conscience that says, ouch, every time we lie. And very on as part of our parental work in life, we we try to reinforce to our kids that that's really the bad thing. When I ask you, did you brush your teeth last night? And you tell me no. And I find out that you actually, you, or you tell me yes, you brushed them. <laughs> you never say no, you didn't brush them. And I find out that you're lying to me. What do I say? I say, I mean, son, daughter, brushing your teeth, that's not the big deal. But a lie is a very big deal. And that is ingrained in us early in life. What ends up happening is the more we do it, the less our insides say, ouch. Lying is maybe the only sin in the world commonly accepted as, as wrong in the world that everybody still does it every day. Like we, we lie so much. <laughs> um, we, we lie on our resume. We lie on a dating profile. We call in sick because we need the day off of work. We're tired, but we're really not sick. Ever done that? You know, we tell other Christians, I'm praying for you, when in truth, we haven't really offered any ardent prayer on their behalf. We underreport our income on our taxes because we can. And unfortunately, the more we lie, the less our conscience does say, ouch. But even if you don't do that, more subtle are the lies we tell every day without ever technically saying something that was false. <laughs> you get it, that you can lie without ever saying something that is false. As long as you intentionally leave a false impression, you leave out this part of the details or you put that particular spin on things so that the person walks away from the exchange with a false picture of reality, you never technically lied, but you completely lied. <laughs> and the good rule of thumb that uh, people have always said is that if your intent is to deceive, if deception is your intent, then you're likely breaking the ninth commandment. And we do this all the time. Now, I... In another sermon, I could talk about all of the exceptional circumstances. You know, the Hebrew midwives and Pharaoh and Rahab and the city of Jericho and, and give you all the qualifications to give a more robust you know, theology, uh, you know, ethical vision of, of when is lying ever uh, justified or not. I don't have enough time for that. Um, I'll just tell, ask you to do this. When, when you catch yourself in a lie, will you look at that lie? Because you'll, you'll discover... There's something at that moment you feel like you must have. Like, what is it that I, I've got to have right now 
that enables or allows me to think it's, it's worth compromising my character? What, what do I need so badly? Uh, is it uh, I must avoid the consequences? I must have a little more money? I must avoid shame and embarrassment and save face? I must be approved? And you go, if you just follow that, I must have, you discover uh, very often that we tell lies because we believe lies. We, we don't believe the gospel in its fullness, the truth of God about ourselves. And I'm lying because I'm believing a lie that I need this thing right now when I really don't. The lie that the most important thing that matters is how other people perceive me. That's a big lie. The lie that my comfort is more important than my character right now. That's a big lie. I want you to finally agree or disagree with this statement. Agree or disagree. Most of us have a profound inability to be honest about what's really going on in our lives. Agree or disagree? We have a profound inability just to, to be honest and self-aware to know what's really going on in my life. Uh, that's not true of all of us. That's true of most of us. And the tragedy of, the, of churches is that we don't feel comfortable sharing what's really going on in our lives with the other people in our church because we've been burned before and we're never, never going to do that again. It's simply easier to live as an actor who masquerades than to live self-aware and to be free to share what's really going on inside of me and in my life with, with somebody, with anybody else. I'll leave, leave you to, to chew on that. I'll I just say two things in conclusion. And these are not magic bullets. They're not silver bullets. They're just you know, things that also chew on. Number one, remember the Trinity. Remember how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are so secure in each other's love. I think that's why the Father never lies to the Son. The Son never has to conceal from the Father. The Holy Spirit, they're always... For all eternity, speaking the truth in love to one another. And I I think that the more secure we are in our Father's love, um, the more free we are to speak the truth in love to those around us. And then the second one is in Revelation 1. 5 or 1, 4, and 5, where John at the beginning of the book of Revelation in his address to the church, to the seven churches, says, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. That's how he's described. Who is the faithful witness who appeared before Pontius Pilate And Pontius Pilate said, so you're a king. And Jesus replied, well, you say that I am a king, but for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the the truth. Here is Jesus Christ, our Savior, who is the faithful witness, who lived a perfect life, who always spoke the truth in love, who never concealed. And isn't it interesting that the only way they were able to get a death penalty sentence against them was by doing what? Was by getting false witnesses in order to condemn him to death. I think that's one of the reasons why the devil loves it when we bear false witness is 
That was the tool that he used to slay our Savior. And that, friends, is the tool, one of the primary tools he still uses today to kill the body of Christ, to keep killing the Son of God. And the church is false witnesses who, through slander, through gossip, through flattery, through lying, undermine any chance that we have to live together in love and trust. It kills our community. And so we follow the one in conclusion who is faithful and the faithful and true witness. And by his grace, as you pray for us, as you pray for our church, pray that we as a church will grow fully into the truthfulness of God. Amen.